This is Salt and Spine. Independent media is the only space where we can have new voices come up and say things that are challenging. But at the same time, like so, so many powerful hands need to change for a real cancellation, not of a human, not of human beings, but a cancellation of a system that is boring and repeats the same things and repeats the same mistakes and doesn't allow for nuance in discussion of anything that challenges the status quo. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks, and you're tuning in for a bonus special episode today, uh, and I'm joined by Salt and Spine producer Madeline Forbes. Hi, Madeline. Hi, Brian. Great to see you virtually, you quarantine life. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and we decided to do this special bonus episode today, one that we, sort of a format we haven't done before um, because of some news, some drama, you might say, in the cookbook industry that sort of felt big enough that we didn't really want to totally ignore it. But we also didn't want to sort of talk too much about what happened because it's really been very well covered. So of course, I think maybe folks can guess by now what we're talking about, right? It's, yeah. it's Alison Roman's <laughs> interview um, that she did recently where she talked about Chrissy Teigen and Marie Kondo and sort of also talked about her approach to her brand and her mm-hmm. work. But it raised a number of issues that we've talked about at different points on Salt and Spine. And so we decided we would take a different approach um, with this week's show and sort of step back instead of talking one-on-one in depth with a cookbook author, we'd instead bring in a food writer. And so you had the chance, Madeline, to talk with Alicia Kennedy. Yes, I'm excited for this episode because it allows us to kind of look at food and like the realm of cookbook authors through a different lens and the lens of talking about, you know, the core issues that have existed in the food world for some time, which are disparities around gender and race and sexuality and where does our food come from and like what labor goes into that food, you know, the production of it and then ultimately where it's sold and who's consuming it. You know, Alicia, she is a uh, food writer based in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and she has a newsletter called From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. So definitely subscribe. We'll give you some resources on how to do so. But basically, she wrote a piece about the controversy that happened with Alison Roman and Chrissy Teigen. And then her article was republished on Medium um, and definitely got a lot of people talking. She definitely she got a lot of subscribers from that, which is great. But ultimately, I think people who didn't have access normally to this conversation or weren't asking themselves these questions before around food are kind of dipping their hands into that, which I think is great. It's accessing a broader audience that we haven't really seen before. And obviously, like you and I, Brian, like this is something we're a part of. We talk about these issues with authors all the time. Um, But like the everyday folk, like the people who are cooking at home and the people that, you know, Alison Roman and Chrissy Teigen are accessing like who their audience is. So I think it's definitely important that we bring this to light through Salt and Spine. Obviously, the show is centered around cookbook authors and their experiences and approach to food and, you know, their journeys and obstacles. And we work with a lot of women cookbook authors, too. So I'm really excited that I was able to speak with Alicia Kennedy about these things. Yeah, and you're right that I think people in the industry and we like think about these issues a lot. We talk about these issues a lot. Um, we've talked about these issues on Salt and Spine at various points with various authors, mm-hmm. whether it be 
um, gender disparities in the food world and the cookbook world, obviously um, disparities in race and just like general disparities in a, a whitewashed industry about who's getting access, who's getting, yeah. who's even being offered a cookbook deal to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I think even we could do better, obviously. We, we could certainly do better at talking about these issues more often and also not only talking about these issues with the people who are sort of most negatively affected by them. And I think Mm -hmm. we sort of tend to talk about those issues with authors who have been personally impacted by them because we're bringing folks on our show and we want to hear about Mm -hmm. how they were able to publish their first cookbook or how they sort of navigated their career. And so those issues sort of often naturally come up um, and Mm -hmm. those, those trials, but I think we could certainly do a better job too um, of talking about these things on the whole. Yeah. I agree. I mean, there's always room to evolve and grow and learn. And I think it's important that, you know, we're even having this conversation and sharing with our audience, obviously, that um, we want to explore these issues and bring them to light and have dialogue around them. We're definitely not trying to shy away from things like this. And I think it's a good opportunity for us to, you know, hear from our audience and, you know, see what they have questions about, what they want to hear more of. And also to hold us accountable and how can we create more dialogue with not just the authors who've been affected, uh, you know, by these oppressive systemic structures and food and just society overall and how we can bring those conversations in a very whitewashed industry, like holding that dialogue with white folks who also have access to a really large community. And like that's the the communities that like need to be having those conversations within themselves too, uh, not just people of color educating white folks. So yeah, yeah, I think this is a great moment to, once again, hold us accountable and make sure we're really investing in those conversations across the board. Yeah, totally. I think that's that's excellent context. And I'm so excited that you had the chance to sit down with Alicia Kennedy. So I think um, let's go now to your interview. This is Salt and Spine producer Madeline Forbes talking with food writer Alicia Kennedy. Hi, Alicia. Hi, how's it going? Great. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So there's quite a few topics I want to dive in with you today. So let's just start with last week's controversy between cookbook author and chef Allison Roman and Chrissy Teigen, what's now been coined as Roman Gate. I don't want to dive too much into the nuances of the drama and all of the backlash that happened, but more so kind of want to use it as a jumping off point of the conversation at large that's happening in terms of the gender and racial disparities that have been happening in food for so long and kind of why this larger conversation is just happening now. So I just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on when that happened, and then kind of why it seems to be white people are really just having this conversation when a large event or controversy like this happens in media. I mean, this conversation is only happening when a large event happens because that's when people feel called out and and confronted wow. and implicated by their own um, maybe unconscious biases and their own privilege and their own unchecked behavior. Um, this is the time when people have to wonder whether they have gotten their position of power because of some meritocracy or because of larger systemic forces at work. And so I think that that's why this conversation is happening more broadly right now. 
But I, I do think it's a mistake to say that this hasn't been a conversation in food media for quite some time, um, for at least the last few years, since at least maybe 2016. It's been a, a big topic of conversation. But I think that the way the conversation has functioned has also been a reason for its failure, um, its failure to make real change and its failure to uh, break outside of food media. It's um, because it's been focused on representation and this idea that if somehow we just put some non-white, some queer voices into the mix, then we fix all our problems. When everyone on the mastheads is still largely white, is still largely middle to upper class, is still largely college educated, you know, you're not changing any Mm -hmm. of the class makeup of mastheads, you're not changing the real racial or gender or sexuality composition of the mastheads. And so then you're just going to keep having these little moments, these flare ups when someone says something out of pocket, and they apologize, they put out a mea culpa, and people maybe try a little harder to be more representative. But, you know, this thing just just brought to light larger problems and why the larger conversation hasn't had any real impact on the mainstream of food media and and why it remains kind of a niche conversation. And I mean, it, it partly... Uh, at the root of it is is Alison Roman having been such a darling of food media and getting so much credit for her creativity and for her voice when so much of her work was derivative of Asian cuisine and not uh, without giving it any Absolutely. sort of um, and not giving it a shout out, not shouting out cultural context and that sort of thing. And we're still seeing that. I think it was just a couple of days ago that Baker Christina Tosi of Milk Bar posted a video on Instagram saying that her mm-hmm. baking club was going to make um, flaky bread and it is just paratha. It is the well-known Indian <laughs> flatbread paratha. Yeah, uh, so, <laughs> I think I saw you so, that on Instagram. Yeah, so these issues are, are so widespread and so deeply entrenched that it will take a massive shift for anything to change. Totally. Do you think there's some sort of fear? in? I mean, of course, I think people should be crediting where they're sourcing from and mm-hmm. actually giving name to the dishes that they're making and where they were, the cultures that they were inspired from. Um, but do you think that there's some fear in not sourcing and not crediting in terms of that? It's almost taking away from their innovation or creativity when once again, this is all birthed from a lot of cultures of color in the food place. But yeah, why do you think there's just such a disconnect in terms of being like, this is a curry? And obviously, curry is a very loaded word in itself. And I know that some people have reclaimed it. Some people still feel finicky about it. Um, but yeah, just wanted to get your thoughts there. Yeah, because the the food media industry is so ego driven. And, and because it rewards yeah. people who take credit, it rewards people who are allowed and, and it rewards, a, you know, something that can be defined as the stew, the cookies, um, yep. the pasta, that sort of thing. And it's like, well, all these things have so many um, rich histories and, and, and go back to so many different cultures, but they get, you know, this grand name, uh, because because of the ego and the personality behind it. And because there's so much money behind that ego and personality um, from institutions, um, it just keeps snowballing. And, you know, that's, it, that's the same. That's a product of the same system that Alison Roman was attempting to call out when she was saying, "Oh, Chrissy Teigen, Marie Kondo, they've sold out. They've they've put their names on things. They've slapped together 
lines of cookware, lines of housewares. And well, mm-hmm. you know, by by letting your recipes with without the proper cultural context be referred to mm-hmm. by the simple names, you are also, you know, making them a product and making them something you're selling, um, along with your personality. And it, it, rip, it rips them out of, you know, it just, it just becomes another capitalist product instead of part of a larger conversation in food, which I mean, I keep saying, uh, when I'm having this conversation, like food mm-hmm. is a conversation, whether it's recipes, whether it's ingredients, whether it's sourcing, like, there's no way to get out of how you're in conversation with the larger cultures. You're in conversation with systems of mm-hmm. oppression. You're in conversation with um, capitalism. You're in, which is a system of oppression. But you're also you're in conversation yeah. <laughs> with all of these things with everyone else who cooks. You know, whether they're a chef yeah. in a dining restaurant or someone in a taqueria down the street. You know, we're all in conversation through food, and we're all in conversation with systems through food, and so. To kind of not acknowledge that for the sake of one's ego mm-hmm. is, I mean, I think that's selling out. <laughs> that's in a way. Um, totally. And, and so it, it's it's just so important to make these broader acknowledgments. And when you don't make those acknowledgments, you kind of, you, you're cutting off a conversation that's supposed to be had and you're making it all about you and your recipes. Definitely. And, and I think the term or phrase selling out is so loaded uh, and it's so like controversial and confusing and everyone has their own definition to it. And obviously I've been reflecting on this a lot, uh, not only this instant, but just, you know, all of the disparities that have been happening in food for a very long time uh, within race and gender and sexuality and whatnot. And just kind of like, you know, what, and I, I still don't even think I have an answer of like, what is selling out? Like, is it selling out your sense of self and authenticity of like, no, I would never have a line at Target or just like selling out to capitalism? Do they go hand in hand? Like, and I kind of like that you, you know, pose that question in the uh, article or what you wrote in your newsletter of, you know, what is selling out? And have you kind of come to a sense of like, I mean, I know you just kind of touch base on it. Um, if you're not having those conversations and like, yes, maybe you can have this like vintage spoon line, but if you're not like engaging with those communities and like bringing to the table uh, the issues that need to be highlighted in food, um, then essentially that is selling out. <laughs> that is, yes. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, no, it's, I, I mean, I think it's been, I don't know if great is the right word, but I think it's definitely accessed a broader audience who are thinking about the questions that maybe they haven't thought about before, uh, especially white people who haven't tapped into these things, especially black and brown people have been thinking about this for a very long time. Um, but I've also been thinking about like what happens next a lot. Um, and, you know, the whole notion of cancel culture, I have a really hard time with it. I don't think it allows room for people to grow and actually learn from their mistakes and move forward and create change. So yeah, I, I guess now I want to know like what you think and once again, you don't have to have all the answers, but um, what you'd like to see happen moving forward from both, you know, white people in food and your thoughts on cancel culture and kind of what that looks like in the light of this incident, uh, but also at the larger conversation. Right. I mean, when I, you know, when people say cancel culture, I think it's funny because I just don't, I don't know who's really been canceled. Like, and like other than like oh, Harvey, <laughs> Harvey Weinstein got canceled because he went to jail yeah. um, for his crimes. But I'm Something not sure. Happened. Yeah. You know, Woody Allen, you know, he had a book out and um, I, you know, I haven't seen anyone really get destroyed by cancel culture 
unless I mean Mario Batali, sure, he's persona yeah. non grata. But again, like these are for absolutely criminal, horrifying offenses. For cultural offenses, oh, really? there's always mm-hmm. there's always a way to bounce back, especially when you have you're so entrenched in the power structures that govern your industry. Like Alison Roman is, you know, she's a Bon Appetit contributor. She's a New York Times contributor. These are the two most Mm -hmm. powerful food institutions in the United States. She'll be just fine. And there are still, there are so many people who are, you know, a lot of people are, are, having a moment of really thinking about this, maybe for the first time, I did get like someone commenting on my heated piece, which is republishing my newsletter Mm -hmm. saying, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I, I'm reading this and I'm thinking they're making a big deal out of nothing, but also I'm very uncomfortable and I need to keep reading. And so I'm like, okay, well, if someone is saying that, then that's probably not the only person who's saying that. And that's good. But there's still forever for any comment or reader like that. There's another reader who's like, she just didn't want to, she just disrespected a swimsuit model. What do you care about? So like, yeah. Like, I think Alison Roman will be fine. I think that she'll have, you know, oh, she'll make a recipe that'll go over a little bit better than Batali cinnamon rolls. And uh, that'll be it. I don't think the makeup at these on these mastheads is going to change, especially right now as the industry is going through so many layoffs. I do think, as I said, also in my newsletter, independent media is the, the only space where we can have new voices uh, come up and say things that are challenging. And so it's great to see places like Whetstone Magazine, Vittles, which is a newsletter out of London, um, you know, podcasts like Korsha Wilson's A Hungry Society, um, and maybe the only really challenging restaurant critic in the entire world, Soleil Ho at San Fr- the San Francisco Chronicle. So like the voices are coming up, whether they're in independent mm-hmm. media or whether they've gained access to an institution. Um, but at the same time, like so, so much so many powerful hands need to change for um, a real cancellation, not of a hum- not of human beings, but a cancellation of a system that is boring and repeats the same things and repeats the same mistakes and doesn't allow for nuance in discussion of anything that challenges the status quo. Totally agree. Um, and just to kind of go to a different point. But similar, um, and highlighting something from your article, you said, quote, what is it that people really want from food writing? The easy stuff or the difficult stuff? Can both happen simultaneously? If so, how? That's what I'm trying to work through to figure out where I fit and why I do this. Um, which I think is totally true. It's like we have really, I don't know, like, I guess fluffy or just surface level writing sometimes and then super political and then yeah, I've definitely seen people and some the people that you mentioned do like cross over that, which I I can't separate food from politics. Like I think they're totally enmeshed. There's reason for that from how the food is grown to the labor that goes into it to who's making it and consuming it. Um, But yeah, I mean, I just want to hear more about if you've kind of gotten to a point of like, do we separate that or do we not separate that? And um, yeah. I mean, I think we don't. I think we can't. I think uh, the, yeah. there's an example that I bring up constantly, which people probably want me to shut up about. But it's the like the Popeye's <laughs> chicken sandwich moment that the culture had yeah. last year and uh-huh. how how uncritically it was covered in the food press. And like because people wanted to eat fast food. And it's again, it's because of these issues where people have believed that that food writing and food media is a haven for this kind of white gloved fine dining 
and or mm-hmm. like out of reach, out of touch, farm to table um, thing. So people, the, that's the popular perception of food media. And we saw that in the response mm-hmm. to the Roman thing with people being like, why is food writing just, you know, for not doing anything about all these other issues? And it's like, well, it is unless, but if you're not yeah. paying attention, then no. But anyway, so, totally. but the Popeye's chicken sandwich thing was such a good example because it is a, you know, a fast food chain, which mm-hmm. has, uh, you know, extremely not good uh, labor practices, uh, pays low wages, sources the cheapest possible food. Um, And this craze happened at the same time that there were ice raids at poultry plants in Mississippi. And I'm not sure Popeye's was sourcing chicken from those poultry plants, but they were sourcing chicken from very similar poultry plants, undoubtedly. This is where the cheap meat comes from. And now that's, that's such a visible system now, which is great. I wonder how that'll actually change um, the factory farm system. But there was just this, this total disconnect where food writers were just like the Popeye sandwich is good and never critiquing that, you know, maybe Popeye's has, it does not treat its workers well, which we also saw because while it was such a craze and it kept selling out, people were going there treating people poorly. The employees were exhausted. There were so many viral images of like Popeye's workers, like on a bench outside, like, just totally exhausted from work that doesn't pay enough for that kind of exhaustion. And then you have uh, the, the, these other reporters who are doing harder news uh, talking about the ice raids at poultry plants and like never did the two ideas meet that maybe the cheap meat Mm -hmm. that we keep elevating to this stature Mm -hmm. of like, Oh, it's delicious. It doesn't matter. Like thinking about where your meat comes from makes you a snob. Um, Like how, how can you promote, like how can you promote a cheap chicken sandwich in the, well, in the same, the same, metaphorical pages of your magazine someone is talking about lives that have been ruined um it's just such yeah. a cognitive dissonance and so this is i mean totally. i wrote a I wrote a piece about this dissonance for the new republic in february and uh, it's just gotten more stark ever since that piece was published that like and i i keep reading more in the business section of the new york times to call out a specific mm-hmm. publication about, you know, the meat packing issues and, and mm-hmm. the food system issues that we're seeing. It's all being put in the business section, not in the food section. And, you know, to quote Ruth Reichel, who I've, I've quoted before on this, who is the former editor-in-chief of Gourmet magazine, you need to put yep. the food system issues in front of the people who are cooking and shopping. And you have to, you know, even if they do end up buying the cheap meat because that's what they can afford and that's what they feed their family, at least there there's some awareness in their mind of you know treating it accordingly and responding accordingly to you know what's happening and so it's just you have to yeah it's just this total disconnect where people who care about food are are thought to not care about bigger issues and Mm -hmm. it's false and it's really troubling and it's in the end it is a destructive um thing thing to do to divide these so starkly totally don't go anywhere we'll be right back with food writer alicia kennedy it's also interesting to just think of like, it's so easy to blame the consumer, but yes. we're not creating accessibility to that consumer of like what's actually going on. Obviously, like there's larger institutions at play who like have a strategy and are presenting that information, like you said, in the business section versus the food section. And it's like, okay, well, if I'm someone who like loves food, I like can't read every article in a newspaper. 
and I'm just going to the food section and not seeing, you know, uh, the issues or things at play with the food industry that we really need to talk about. Um, then it's like, how else would I see it? You know? So I think it's like, how do we hold these institutions accountable, um, for, once again, like you said, not putting that information in the food section versus the business section. I think that's interesting to think about. Uh, I'm like, what can I do? <laughs> I can still, like, have my voice heard. Obviously, I'm just one person, but like, it's so important. I mean, gosh, I, it's funny. My mom called me um, yesterday and was like, so what do you think about everything that happened with Allison Roman and Chrissy Teigen? Obviously, I gave her my two cents and whatnot. But she also was like, you know, I didn't hear too much about it. Like, I feel like a lot of it was on Twitter and like, I read what I could, but um, there wasn't like, I didn't feel like I had access to articles of, you know, what the larger conversation at play. Um, mm-hmm. So it just made me think like, well, how could have that like tapped into someone like my mom and whatnot? But anywho, so just tying back to the article that you first published in your newsletter and then was published on to Medium about food, food snobism and elitism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that kind of thing that like, if we're talking about, you know, these core issues or the disparities of race and gender and fair labor and whatnot in food, then like we're snobbish. If we're talking about anything beyond, I don't know, just a food experience that we're having dining at a restaurant or whatnot. I just, I thought that was really interesting because I don't know, I, I've obviously thought about that and gotten definitely had people be defensive before when I brought those issues to the forefront of having a conversation and whatnot, but kind of wanted to hear you expand on that. Well, it's, it's been something that's been happening that I've been thinking about for a long time. And I was actually going mm-hmm. to write my newsletter on Monday about that, whether Alison Roman stuck her foot in her mouth or, mouth or not. It just gave me kind Got of a, a context <laughs> that, yeah. that people could understand. But yeah, there's there had been this whole big moment where people were excited about farmers markets. Um, farm to table dining was a big idea. Um, and then all of a sudden you started reading people, you know, taking that to task and, and mocking it. And it was no longer like cool. It was just people being snobs and obsessive about where their food comes from. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that was weird to me because that, that's such a false dichotomy that one has to, yeah. if one's caring about where their food comes from, then one is ultimately doesn't care about accessibility. Um, and so mm-hmm. that false dichotomy has, been an obsession of mine <laughs> for a while because that's what that that dichotomy is why you'll see like I've read a restaurant critic be like the lamb was flown in from Australia and it was so refreshing in our farm to table times and this is a major food critic and I'm like dude like we didn't come far enough for us to make like make jokes about farm to table and make jokes about the the you know the carbon emissions impact of flying yeah. lamb from Australia to New York. Like we didn't make enough uh, progress there for that to be like some sort of like, like, Oh, and also why does it relax you to know that your lamb is from Australia instead of from upstate New York or something? It's just very, it was a very odd thing. And then we saw it also with the Popeye's chicken sandwich where it's like, I don't want to be a snob. So I'm going to go eat this Popeye sandwich and I'm going to make a big deal about it. And I'm not going to ask any questions about where this chicken came from or any of these ingredients or whether the workers are paid fairly and that sort of thing. And it's like, uh, why is it considered snobbery to be like, hey, I I don't want to eat a chicken sandwich that is um, from a factory farm and was made by someone who has been exploited for their labor. And so um, when that... 
when that happened, I wrote this piece that I think, I guess, started this whole line of thought for me for Edible Brooklyn, where mm-hmm. I've been working at the time about uh, where I interviewed someone who has a restaurant in Williamsburg, Brooklyn called Egg about why his chicken sandwich was fried chicken sandwich was $15 versus like the three ninety nine one at Popeye's. And just like yeah. trying to understand, you know, and make very explicit, like the choices that that person has made to pay their workers fairly to buy chicken that's, you know, as affordable as possible, but also not from, you know, chickens that have lived on top of each other in cages with their beaks cut off and, you know, in their own shit for like a few weeks until they get their they die. So by also yeah. being slaughtered by an underpaid, usually immigrant laborer who we're seeing now is so devalued by their their employers um and so like it's just i just this uh, idea that it's snobbery to care is so false and so pervasive Mm -hmm. and so i hope by making it explicit that like these things are important like you know people have really latched onto the line the coffee always comes from somewhere from Mm -hmm. my piece and it's like because people forget that it's like the coffee took so much work and but so many people oh, yeah. complain about oh like the the snobbery and the privilege of a five dollar cup of coffee it's like it is a privilege to have a five dollar cup of coffee considering how much work goes into coffee and and that it if yeah. you're usually if you're complaining you're probably complaining in New York or Chicago or whatever and you know, coffee doesn't grow there like it had to come from somewhere so it's totally. just um hopefully making those explicit connections um try is is my attempt to get make sourcing not a snobbish interest but mm-hmm. a necessary one especially when we're living with the disastrous effects of, of climate change um, on our planet. Um, and so, you know, it's not it's not sobriety to talk about these things that affect everyone. I totally agree. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed having you on the show thank, today. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show for today. That was Salt and Spine producer Madeline Forbes talking with food writer Alicia Kennedy. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Alicia Kennedy's weekly newsletter on issues in food, as well as Q&As with people in the food industry at aliciakennedy.substack.com. As always, you can find bonus content from all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. All Patreon revenue in May and June is being donated to Restaurant Opportunity Centers United, emergency relief fund for both documented and undocumented restaurant workers. Our show today was produced by Madeline Forbes and me, Brian Hogan-Stewart. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you tired of political podcasts, peddling horse paste, and man supplements? Then listen to The Bituation Room with me, Francesca Fiorentini, featuring progressive comedians, activists, and experts. 
We break down the week's news with plenty of laughs and ridiculousness, which we desperately need, while diving deep into juicy left topics like remaking the police, abortion rights, and why Jeff Bezos is a cyborg. Get The Bituation Room right to your ear holes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, anywhere except Facebook. Podcasts on Facebook are going away June 3rd, so consider yourself poked. The Bituation Room with Francesca Fiorentini. If I can't laugh, it's not my revolution. A-cast, 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 A-cast recommends. recommends.